The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's the responsibility of the IRS to audit the president every year. Trump was in years that were covered by those audits, writing personal checks to pay for the tuition of Weisselberg's grandkids' tuition. Uh, So this suggests that that audit wasn't very thorough. And one of the original reasons for focusing on Trump's tax returns was this thought that we need some framework for ensuring that our commander-in-chief and our chief tax enforcement officer is actually obeying the tax laws in his personal dealings. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 2nd, 2021. The Manhattan District Attorney and the New York Attorney General's Office have issued an indictment against the Trump Organization and its Chief Financial Officer, Alan Weisselberg. It was, shall we say, not the indictment that many people who imagined accountability for Donald Trump would have prayed for or would have expected, it focuses on under-the-table compensation for senior executives, one senior executive in particular. To chew it all over, we got an incredible group of people, Lawfare Senior Editor Quinta Jurassic, Daniel Hemmel, a tax law expert at the University of Chicago, and Rebecca Royfe of the New York Law School, who is an expert on prosecutions and politicization, and a veteran of the New York office that brought the case. We covered a lot of ground. You won't want to miss it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 2nd, the Trump Organization Indicted. All right, so Quinta, I want to start with you. There's been a lot of both disappointment and excitement expressed about this indictment and a little bit less signal as to what's actually in it. So let's start with what's actually in it. What did Cy Vance and Letitia James allege about Alan Weisselberg and the Trump organization? So first off, I'll say I was listening to NPR in the minutes after the indictment was released, and I think the host said about every other sentence that Trump himself was not indicted. So I'll begin by uh, taking a cue from NPR and emphasizing that here as well. Trump himself was not indicted. This is an indictment of the Trump Organization and of the organization's chief financial officer, Ellen Weisselberg, as you said. The indictment alleges a prolonged scheme over the course of about 15 years that essentially allowed uh, Weisselberg and other unnamed executives to evade paying uh, 
fairly substantial amount of taxes by giving them perks and benefits sort of off the books. So it alleges that Weisselberg was provided with an apartment, that the organization paid the fees for the school tuition of some of his relatives, including checks signed by Donald J. Trump himself. There is a a car that was driven by Weisselberg. And so the problem here is essentially that by not listing this level of income, it essentially allowed the employees to avoid paying that in taxes. So it amounts to a substantial amount of tax revenue that both New York State and the federal government did not receive. Crucial to this is that it's not you know, a one-off. Weisselberg was doing this for himself and nobody else knew about it. As I said, the indictment does allege that some of the checks were signed by Trump personally. It also points to uh, involvement by other executives. There is an unindicted co-conspirator listed, and we can talk about that. And it also points to just a really built-out infrastructure within the Trump organization itself to make this happen. There's a description of spreadsheets that the organization kept to essentially make sure that the benefits that they were providing Weisselberg were not listed as his official income. And so this, I think, is is partially explains why the organization was indicted along with Weisselberg and why prosecutors are alleging a conspiracy rather than kind of a one-off. Okay, Daniel, so there's been a bit of a dispute as to whether this is small bore kind of corruption stuff or whether this is something big and important. And I can kind of argue this either way, but I'm I'm interested in your sense of it. Is this more or less or about what you were expecting this indictment to contain? I thought that this was from a tax perspective, jaw-dropping. For, for non-tax lawyers, The Trump organization didn't report, Weisselberg didn't pay taxes on fringe benefits. It might sound like a footfall from a tax perspective. Gosh, more than a million dollars in clearly unambiguously taxable fringe benefits that you're not reporting to the IRS, not reporting to state tax authorities, and keeping a separate set of books internally, counting that as compensation. That's really, really, really bad. To put this in perspective, this is pretty similar to what Leona Helmsley did. Leona Helmsley was sentenced to prison for four years for booking to her company expenses on her Greenwich mansion. Uh, Here, Weisselberg was booking the entire cost of his apartment to the Trump Corporation, one of the Trump Organization's entities. So that strikes me as one of the tax offenses that actually could get you locked up. There are other facts in here that are really bad. For Weisselberg. So he got $30,000 in wads of cash at the end of the year that the corporation kept track of, but he didn't report as income. But the more than a million dollars a year in apartment expenses, that's really bad. Okay. But let me push back on that a little bit because there's some things that aren't in here, right? We had a, I don't know, 30 page New York Times expose about the Trump organization overvaluing its real estate holdings for certain purposes and undervaluing them for others, right? We had all kinds of discussion about the president's personal taxes in the context of litigation from this office trying to get access to those records. 
none of that information is in here. And what is in here is kind of limited to, ex, you know, compensation by of executives and one executive in particular and the absence of tax payments on it. Should we regard this as any kind of important advance in the Trump accountability story? Or is this just like a Leona Helmsley thing where, you know, Alan Weisselberg uh, cheated on his taxes and the Trump organization helped him do it? We don't know yet. So I think that this would be a chargeable offense if it weren't Trump connected. It probably wouldn't be discovered if it uh, weren't Trump connected. But the then state attorney general of New York brought charges against Leona Helmsley for what she did. And this seems pretty similar. It would surprise me if all this were going on just for Weisselberg. And it would really surprise me if the man on top didn't understand what was going on. He was writing personal checks for the tuition expenses of Weisselberg's grandkids at Columbia Grammar. Uh, This is a man who says he has the best understanding of anyone of our complex tax laws. So he should have understood that that was employee compensation that had to be reported. So I think this makes it you know, plausible that Trump ultimately gets charged for a tax offense. We're not there yet, but I would consider this a bad day for the Trump organization. All right. This is a very uh, good transition to Rebecca's particular expertise uh, related to this question, which is the office and its behavior that brought this case. So you used to serve in the New York DA's office. If this were a federal case, I would feel like I knew how to read it. That is, with respect to the question that Daniel just posed, which was, what is this a harbinger of? And I would look at this case and say, it's pretty narrow. The conduct is egregious, but it is focused on this one executive compensation question. It's not teasing other issues. It's not dangling a lot of issues related to the former president's personal conduct, except this one issue related to his signing a check. So this is would indicate to me in the federal system that this is kind of what they got. And they're maybe trying to put pressure on Alan Weisselberg to to cooperate, but they don't have something a whole lot bigger or it would be in this indictment. And my question to you is, is that the right way to read the conduct of this office, given that they just impaneled a special grand jury to sit for a good while longer? They've got Michael Cohen, who clearly wants desperately to testify. And we do know there's this other kind of stuff out there. So how should we read what this office is doing here? So I have to say, I'm not sure in this regard how different the two offices are. I I was a little bewildered when news of this came out before I saw the actual indictment, because I would normally think that you wouldn't proceed this way. You would kind of come out with your indictment that has what you got and you wouldn't drop one piece of it ahead of time. And I, you know, it's kind of like scratching my head and thinking like maybe there's a statute of limitations problem. You know, I I couldn't quite understand why they were doing it like this. But I, I will say one thing about the office, which is that in a way, because we 
the DA doesn't have the same tools that the federal government has, both in terms of substantive law and in, in terms of some procedural issues. It forces them to be a little bit more like scrappy and creative. So I do feel like sometimes you would just go off script in a case when because you needed to get somewhere. So I think maybe we have to look at it like that, that, you know, without knowing, you know, without being privy to like whatever meetings led up to this, in some way, this is some kind of creative step trying to do something. And I think the best guess is what you said, which is they are trying to put pressure on Weisselberg to cooperate. Now, one way you could look at it is without him, they can't bring the case. I think I would put it slightly differently, which is that, I mean, when I was there, we would bring cases. I I have to say also, like I worked for, I worked in this division called Investigation Division Central, which was um, run at the time by uh, a lawyer named John Moscow. And he was sort of known for being a little bit crazy. And he ran their big um, sort of securities fraud, big financial crimes unit. And so he would do things that were really like, like defense attorneys would get would go crazy because they were so like unorthodox. And so I don't know, maybe this is unique to that. My view of the office may have been unique to him, unique to his unit. Maybe Cy Vance is different, but he would have brought cases that were really, really hard, like cases that the federal government would be like, no way, not touching it. Like SDNY would like turn the other way, EDNY would turn the other way. And we'd be like, well, we have it. <laughs> like, because we didn't really care about losing. We were like, you know, we just kind of go in there and and we, the, under Morgenthau, it was like kind of an aggressive way of treating these things. Not, I mean, not unethical, but when you really thought something went wrong and you were like, this is a really hard case to prove, I'm going to try it anyway. And just to be clear, you're referring to Robert Morgenthau, the who, Robert Morgenthau, who, yes, who ran that office for before 50 years. Yes, before right. Cyvance. And totally dating myself because I did not work under Cy Vance. I worked under Morgenthau. So um, I'm old. But anyway, so the, the, the point being that I, I think that it's not that they don't have, I mean, again, total speculation, but my view is not that they, is that it's not that they don't have a case. It's that the case that they have would be really, really hard to prove. Under normal conditions, they might just bring that case. But if you bring a case that's like a real stretch under these circumstances, you really open yourself up to this narrative, which is this is a witch hunt. And so I, if I were in the office right now, I'd be much more wary of bringing a case where you're relying on a lot of circumstantial evidence to prove intent. And what you really want is that witness. So I don't know if I would say you don't have a case. I'd say you have a case that's really, really hard to prove. And you're scared about charging a case that's really, really hard to prove in this climate. And so you're doing this creative thing or this unusual thing in order to get a witness who will help you prove that case. You pretty much think you have it, but it's just, you know, it, it would be one of those cases that you could lose. And if you, you know, I don't know what, what, what's the term, like if you're coming after the King, you better kill him. Like that's that, it seems like you can't do that. Now you would end up undermining the legitimacy of the DA's office. You don't want to do that. So I don't know. It's my best guess. I really don't. I really don't know. I had the same reaction as you, to be honest. So just just to clarify, when you say this unorthodox thing, what you're referring to is indicting a small piece of the case that you have rock solid. And Mm -hmm. if, if the facts as alleged in this indictment are 
accurate. It's mm-hmm. it does seem like they've got them dead to rights on tax evasion. Yeah, um, totally. With the idea that that generates pressure both on the organization, which presumably won't settle on a cooperation basis, and with Weisselberg, who might is that right. is that the the gambit? Right. Right. And I think and I agree with Daniel that like when I first heard the way it was being spun by um, his defense attorneys, I was like, wow, this is he's like Weisselberg's not even facing jail time. So like now, really, what are they doing? But when it's up close to nine hundred thousand dollars in tax loss, um, which Daniel can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what I read. Then, you know, if you add up the the federal plus the state were around that, I think with the class C felony, which grand larceny in the second degree is um, 15 year max probation possible. There's no way with that amount of money that he would be getting probation. And so Weisselberg facing jail time, maybe that really does change the picture. And so I was a little, I understood a little bit more once I saw the indictment, what they were doing, which I think is what you were saying, which is trying to put pressure on Weisselberg to flip before I saw it, when I thought it was just going to be, you know, much smaller amounts, I was even more bewildered about what was going on. All right. Before we go back into the whole history of this case, which uh, fortunately Quinta knows in unbelievable and excruciating detail, I want to focus on this question, Daniel, of how big a deal this stuff really is. So, You've stressed the amount of money in question. It's nine hundred plus thousand dollars, but it's nine hundred plus thousand dollars over fifteen years, which, you know, when you amortize it over that period of time, is uh, starts to look like a little bit less. Walk us through how this compares to other indicted tax cases that don't involve Leona Helmsley that that you've seen. There are a lot of indicted tax cases for smaller amounts involving people who you've never heard of, a diner owner paying employees under the table. Wait, let me stop you. Let me stop you right there. When you say a diner owner paying employees under the table, that's what this case is about, right? It's 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 a non-diner owner paying people under the table. So when 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 the Trump organization or when Donald Trump says this is just a witch hunt. They never go after. This is what everybody does. They never go after people for this. Is that just not true? So I think there are three people in the last month on Long Island, two in Queens and one further out on Long Island, uh, who have been indicted or pled federally on similar stuff, paying employees under the table or charging personal expenses to a business account. It's not a news story when it happens. There are about 400 legal source tax evasion indictments every year in the federal system, you know, one a day somewhere, uh, and a lot of fact patterns that are pretty similar to this, uh, though usually much smaller entities. And what about in the New York state system? I mean, this, after all, isn't a federal case. Right. So it's it's much harder uh, to get data on New York tax prosecutions. In a normal case, it would be the IRS taking the investigative lead and then referring to DOJ. Now, at the time that Letitia James opened her investigation, Donald Trump was still the boss of the IRS and the DOJ. So it's very easy to understand why 
the state AG took the lead here. One other piece of this that might explain why it was a state AG and Manhattan DA pressing on this was Alan Weiselberg was a New York City resident who wasn't paying any New York City income taxes. Uh, so that's just not a case in the federal system. And we know that there are a lot of people out there who are difficult to catch. Uh, and there's a desire to send a message that if you're a New York, New York City resident, you better be paying New York City income taxes. So Quinta, Donald Trump has been continuously under investigation and the Trump organization has been a little bit less continuously under investigation since the Russia investigation started in the fall of 2016. How does this investigation fit into the history of the investigations of the former president? This is separate from the Russia investigation, although portions of it kind of ran in parallel with it timeline-wise. And what I mean by that is that uh, reporting indicates that the criminal investigation from Vance's office began in 2018 after a guilty plea by Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, in the Southern District of New York over payoffs that Trump and his associates had made to various women, essentially paying them to keep quiet over affairs that they said they had had with Trump in order to keep that information from coming out right in advance of the 2016 election. And Cohen was charged and pleaded guilty to a campaign finance violation there. As part of that, Vance sort of picked up that thread and began investigating further. And this is what led to the big fight that listeners probably remember over access to President Trump's tax returns, which was eventually litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court with Trump arguing that as president, he was immune even from state level uh, criminal investigatory process, and that uh, his financial records, which were not being subpoenaed from him, but rather through companies he had done business with, should not be handed over. The Supreme Court did not buy that. It pretty much scrapped that and told Vance that he could go ahead. There were a bit of delay. So Vance eventually got hold of the tax returns in, I believe, uh, February 2021. So that's one portion of the story. The other portion of the story is the investigation being run by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. And again, reporting here indicates that this was sparked by, again, a testimony by Michael Cohen, this time in front of Congress where he stated, this is after his plea deal, that Trump had misled banks and tax authorities about the value of various properties, essentially in order to get better interest rates on loans and to decrease the amount of taxes that he was paying. And so that then sparked an investigation by the New York Attorney General's office. Um, And at some point, the New York Attorney General and Vance teamed up. Again, there's not really a Russia connection here, as as you can see. It's much more on the thread of sort of Trump's personal business dealings. Now, I think one of the big open questions, um, and certainly one of the reasons that congressional committees argued they wanted to look at these same financial records, were the questions of, you know, does the Trump organization have any potentially concerning connections with foreign entities? 
that is not what this investigation is about. That does not seem to have been borne out. Oh, and I should also say that it is worth noting that there was a further federal investigation into, I believe, Weisselberg himself in connection with these payments to Stormy Daniels. That also seems to have been dropped. So the the New York investigation is sort of the last man standing out of these different state and federal investigations into Trump, setting aside the different investigation in Georgia over election subversion. But we can ignore that for the time being. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. 
and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Okay, but one of the things that is, and that was a quite succinct and helpful answer, and yet it still puts in relief the problem that I don't understand what the parameters of this investigation are and what it is and isn't looking at. You got a little bit of Stormy Daniels payments that seems to have been the predicate for it. You've got that giant New York Times story about uh, combined with the Michael Cohen stuff about property valuations. And now you've got an indictment that's about tax evasion on employee compensation. Rebecca, what can we infer here about what the parameters of this this sort of combined state level and city level investigations are, or do we just not know? I think we don't know is the right answer. I mean, you know, we really don't know. But I I do think that there is, you know, there's a common thread to all of those strands within this investigation, which has to do with, you know, a, a particular kind of approach to business accounting that is like messed up. I mean, to use a colloquial term, it's like, you know, I think of all of the news ha- that, that that Quintus so succinctly put together as being like, here is an organization, here is a person who just mixes everything, things that are supposed to, from an accounting, from a business perspective, from a tax perspective, be kept in their little different boxes. It's like personal, business, campaign, all of these things, charity, all of them are all mixed up in this kind of one sort of Trump organization mess. And I think that, you know, I know that that's not really official parameters for an investigation, but I think, you know, there is a common strand to all of those pieces. They all have to do with a kind of, you know, a misaccounting for things. And so, you know, I think that's kind of the the investigation. It was into this organization and into how it, how it handles its dealings. And I think they came up with one piece of it, and this may be the end of the story and all they can charge. And it may not be. All right, Daniel, you alluded earlier to 
your skepticism that Weisselberg would be the only executive for whom this system of differential accounting internally and externally applied. Is there anything that we can infer from these charges about the scope of the investigation and what broader issues they may be thinking about? Nothing that I saw from the indictment tells me what the next move is. It would be surprising if it were just Weisselberg. So one person who we might be looking at now is Ivanka Trump, right? She was working for the Trump Organization too, or her kids' tuition being paid out of business entities. A tax case against anyone else would be, I think, harder to prove on intent grounds. It's very clear that Weisselberg had been in charge of this organization for a long time and understood exactly what was going on. So his testimony would be key in bringing tax charges uh, against other people. Uh, So when he's looking at the potential of many months, maybe years in state prison, maybe he flips. But I don't know whether he then flips on a tax issue or a property valuation for loan purposes uh, issue or a Russia issue. Can I just ask a question of Daniel, which is one part of the indictment that I didn't totally understand was the part about the KEO. So can you explain from a tax perspective what is exactly going on there? Because that seemed to me quite similar to what what was being alleged about Ivanka in the news, that she was getting paid through consulting fees um, for work that was really part of what you know her salaried work. Do you can you explain the tax consequences of that KEO part of the indictment? That's a charge that you would never bring as a criminal charge unless you were bringing other things. But there are certain retirement savings vehicles that you only have access to if you have self-employment income that an employee wouldn't be able to open. So the allegation here was that the Trump organization was giving him contractor pay that was self-employment income that then allowed him to sock away about $50,000 a year in tax-preferred savings. But but if since he's going to pay for the taxes anyway, what's the loss there to the government? Uh, deferral, right? Instead of paying taxes now, he pays tax later. At a lower bracket or something? Uh, maybe at a lower bracket, or he just gets the benefit of oh. tax-free growth in the interim. Okay. So it, it would be like he uh, essentially... He made a complicated maneuver to increase the cap on his contributions to an, to an IRA right, or to a 401k, except he was using different retirement savings vehicle that not very many people use these plans. I was trying to read into that whether Ivanka, you know, whether what was going on with allegedly with Ivanka and those, you know, the payments that, that she was getting as whether she could ultimately be charged in, in, in the sort of similar way. Those would be very weak charges. If that's the best that they have on Ivanka, then uh, this is a sandcastle case. But explain something to me, because I listen to this and I say, assuming for a minute, and just to be clear so that we don't get into any libelous territory with respect to uh, Ivanka Trump, I have no information that the Trump organization was paying her school tuition or paying her rent or anything of the kind. But if hypothetically that were what facts bore out, 
why would she be differently situated from Alan Weisselberg? Is it that he's the chief financial officer of the company, so he clearly understands, whereas she could be a passive beneficiary of somebody else's scheme? Another difference is Donald Trump's allowed to pay his grandkids tuition, and that's not tax evasion. Uh, So there would be less clarity as to whether this was Trump making an accounting error, but doing it through a business account rather than a personal account for paying for personal expenses, which he can do, or uh, whether this was disguised compensation. And to be clear, he can do it through the Trump organization because he's the sole owner of it. So it may be organized as a business, but there's no other shareholder who's suffering. Is that is that well, right? There may be an, an issue with the other shareholders in some of these entities. He owns most of them through you know, close to 100%. There would be an issue if he claimed as a deductible business expense payments for his grandkids' school tuition. I doubt he would do that in part because he was uh, so up to his nose in tax losses that I don't think he would have cared that much about an extra $50,000 deduction. But it's, it's much easier to argue in the Weisselberg context, this was the employer paying the employee's dependents' educational expenses, which is income, rather than this was grandpa paying grandkids tuition, which could just be a gift from the grandfather to the grandkid. So Rebecca, I'm imagining this case going to trial and my knowledge of trial procedure in state court in New York is quite limited, but I'm imagining this going to trial and I'm thinking that there's a direct reference to a check signed by Donald Trump. And I'm thinking that if you're the prosecutor, you would probably want to call Donald Trump to verify that that signature is his and that he signed it and that the facts that you're alleging in the indictment are accurate. Uh, Should we assume that if this goes to trial, Donald Trump is going to have to testify or at least assert the Fifth Amendment to prevent himself from testifying? That's a great question. I don't, uh, I mean, I think that you could definitely build this case without him. I mean, I don't, I think, you know, part of what makes this such a strong indictment is, as you were saying in the beginning, it, it seems kind of like it doesn't even rely on any witnesses who could be problematic. It doesn't even rely. I mean, it's mostly it seems like it could be almost a, a paper case, you know, it would be a strategic decision whether you call him or not. And, you know, it, it maybe you would want to, I'm trying to think about, why? But I don't think you necessarily would have to in order to meet the elements of the crime. I, I mean, in this, I don't think it's a New York state procedure difference. I mean, there are some important differences, like, for instance, to compel testimony, you need to give somebody transactional instead of instead of use and derivative use immunity. But but that's not going to come into play. So, I, you know, nobody's giving Donald Trump transactional <laughs> immunity on this. So I don't know. I mean, it's a great question, but I, I think if it were me and I were making a strategic choice, and you know, I, I think from your experience, probably have as good input on this as well. I don't actually think you would need it, and I probably would just go without it. That's interesting. So, Quinta, talk to us about the level of personal involvement by Trump in this. Uh, there is that reference to the check that he signed. There is also 
uh, reference to him not by name as the president of the organization at a key time. Are they being coy or are they dangling references to him in a fashion that's suggestive of of more pervasive involvement? It's a great question. I mean, I think as both Daniel and Rebecca have pointed out, this conduct seems like it was pervasive within the organization. It's a little hard to imagine that Trump had no knowledge of it whatsoever. He he was signing those checks through 2017, which I, I think is is worth dwelling on. We don't know when in 2017 it stopped. Perhaps it was when he stepped down uh, leading the organization when he assumed the presidency. But that does mean that he was signing these checks, you know, through the 2016 campaign, uh, which is very striking and reminded me a lot of Michael Cohen's testimony about Trump signing checks to reimburse him for the Stormy Daniels payments while Trump was in the White House. As you say, there's also a kind of ambiguous reference to a purchase of the, so this is the lease on the apartment for Weisselberg that in 2005 uh, was leased by the Trump Corporation, uh, and quoting from the indictment, acting through its president. The indictment doesn't say who the president was. Now, in 2005, as you said, Ben, the president of the Trump organization was Trump. Um, and there's congressional testimony from Trump that actually confirms that he's identified as such. It's not clear who the president of the Trump Corporation was. I did a little bit of digging, and at least according to a filing with the Florida Secretary of State as of 1995, Trump was the president of the Trump Corporation, but there's not any information after that. If it is him, I mean, that does seem like a finger pointed in his direction. I, I've also seen, you know, a fair amount of speculation about who this unindicted co-conspirator is, whether that could be him. Um, I've seen some reporting that it is probably not him, although I have no idea how reliable that is at this stage. But I will say it reminds me a little bit of that original Cohen statement of facts where the statement kind of waved its hands at you know, that there was individual one who Cohen had been working with, but didn't actually name him. I think this is a fair bit more attenuated. It's nowhere near that. We don't know if Trump is the person hiding behind, you know, the president of the Trump Corporation. But I did find it interesting that there were sort of these little signposts here and there, hinting threads that might be pulled on to speak to more involvement by his part, whether or not that turns into any criminal charges against him. Daniel, you know, one thing this document does very clearly is provide a set of facts that are unambiguously tax fraud, if accurate. The Justice Department has, as best as I can tell, even after the New York Times did that immense investigation, even after Michael Cohen's testimony, did not launch a significant tax fraud investigation involving Donald Trump. Do they have to now, or is it adequate for the IRS to let the city prosecutors of New York vindicate the federal interest here. It's a very strange set of passages in the in the thing where where the New York DA's office is uh, is alleging fraud against the IRS. But uh, 
Is it plausible for DOJ and the IRS to just now take the position? Well, you know, Cy Vance and Tish James have it. We, we, we can keep kind of sitting on our hands. I mean, the IRS and the DOJ can do whatever they want here. <laughs> it does appear that there is some federal tax that the IRS could go and collect if it wanted to. I'd really like to be a fly on the wall listening into Merrick Garland's internal monologue tonight uh, as he tries to decide whether this is a case worth pursuing or not. Uh, there's actually not an assistant attorney general for tax right now, so it would be either Garland or an acting. Merrick Garland's internal monologue sounds something like this. We will wait for the career prosecutors to make an, a recommendation. We will follow the recommendation of the career prosecutors. We will say publicly only that we have followed the recommendations of the career prosecutors. That's fair. In the Leona Helmsley case, the New York Post broke the story. Robert Abrams, the state AG, said he was going to investigate. And Rudy Giuliani, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York at the time, ran to the, the nearest camera and investigated too and moved faster ultimately than the state AG. I think clear evidence of a federal crime does put some pressure on the IRS and DOJ to do something. But one of the ironies here is that the reason this case is in this these offices to begin with is that DOJ didn't want to touch them, which stoked fears of politicization of DOJ, which in turn spurred these two offices to get involved, which in turn have raised questions about politicization of those offices. If Merrick Garland or or some acting is now to turn around and say, well, they've, you know, hit pay dirt here. We've got to get involved now. Doesn't that raise the reverse politicization question precisely at a time when Garland is trying to actively depoliticize the entity? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that happened over the course of the four years of Trump's presidency is that people who really like to just keep their head down and do their work, and that's the way they maintain that they're not being political, stop being able to do that. They had to keep their head down, do their work, and think about how to, the, to maintain their own legitimacy. And so that screwed everything up because <laughs> the way that you normally like to keep your legitimacy is what you just said Garland wants to do, which is just do what you know is normally done, which is I just defer. But it's almost impossible, as it was for Robert Mueller too, to just put your head down and do your work and not think like, how do I act to counter this narrative um, you know, that I'm, I'm just acting as a political actor? And so you know, I think throughout the federal government that happened. And you're absolutely right that by um, stepping in, Cy Vance in some way was responding to that and also um, exposing himself to that. And, you know, throughout that whole litigation over and uh, I'm sure Quinta, who's just like a great catalog of all these things, would know specifically, but in all of that litigation, it was just like time after time was the allegations of politicization. And now you have Letitia James, who campaigned on the notion of like, I'm after Trump involved in this, which exposes them even further um, to, you know, what I think are, if not, you know, I don't think they're legitimate claims that this is a political prosecution, but they are uh, unfortunately somewhat credible because of what she did. And so, you know, I don't know, like the answer about what you do under those circumstances is it's like uncharted territory. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I have a big problem with Tish James's involvement in this after her campaign promises totally. and statements. And that said, 
I look at the output of this investigation so far, and it seems to me it's been handled in a pretty responsible fashion, which is to say they opened an investigation. They don't seem to have leaked a whole lot, despite the allegations to the contrary. They litigated quite effectively the access to records issue to the Supreme Court. They won. They got some material. They built a pretty professional team. And now they've issued an indictment that uh, seems pretty substantial. How should we understand the institutional performance of these two offices so far? Quinta, jump in. Sure. So seconding what everyone has said about Attorney General James's involvement, I think that's really striking and really unfortunate, potentially, that she hasn't recused. I will say, just to to live up to uh, the expectation that has been set for me as an encyclopedia, I was struck by how uh, at the arraignment today, Carrie Dunn, who is in Vance's office, gave a statement to the judge saying, essentially, you know, we're conscious that this case has been talked about as a political prosecution. That is not what we're doing. And we take this very seriously. And I was struck by that, first off, because that's a, you know, an interesting thing that he he felt the need to say that, but also that he had, he was the person who argued this case before the Supreme Court and had a really striking exchange with, if I remember correctly, Justice Alito, who essentially more or less accused Vance's office of leaking derogatory information to the press about the president. And Dunn's response in a kind of bemused way was essentially explaining to the justice that it's illegal for them to leak grand jury information. Uh, Nevertheless, I think that a note about that did make it into Justice Alito's dissent. But I think that's a, a good demonstration of how, Rebecca, as you pointed out, the office has really been sort of walking a tightrope here in trying to figure out how to pursue this case while not making it look political. And that's just an incredibly hard thing to do. Rebecca, are you basically impressed with how the case has been handled so far or basically unimpressed or is the jury, no pun intended, still out on that? No, I, I mean, so far, I, I, I feel imp- I, I think it's impressive. I think it's done a really good job. I think this is a really good, solid indictment. I, I was going to say one other thing about this question of politicization, which has to do with the history of the office. So one thing is, if you remember, Cy Vance has been accused of going to leniently in the um, white collar world. Uh, He passed up the opportunity to pursue this particular investigation earlier on. And then there was the whole question of uh, not pursuing Weinstein. So, you know, not that that's a white collar crime, but, you know, the the sort of, uh, you know, there's certain sorts of crimes that he has been accused of not being particularly aggressive about. Including Ivanka Trump, by the way. Totally. And so the question is, if he had a different track record, um, if he were Morgenthau, who, you know, who was like fearless, as I said, it was like, go after it, like huge, huge companies, huge defendants. If we lose, we lose, you know, let's get those facts out there. Let's deter this crime. That, that was him. If he were here, I do think that he could have brought an more aggressive prosecution without it looking political, because in some ways that was just his MO. Um, And so if the accounting fraud is really hard to prove and Cy Vance has to be cautious because in order to 
convince people that he's not motivated by the political identity and personal identity of the defendant. He has to be consistent. And since his consistent is not particularly aggressive, he can't be particularly aggressive. So I don't know. It's just, it's just one thing to note is that I, I do think Cy Vance has done a good job here, but I think it's a cautious, you know, it's a cautious way of proceeding. And that's consistent with how he has been as a, as a DA. And, you know, some people think that that's better. It's really a policy sort of ideology thing, whether you would prefer a DA like Morgenthau, or you would prefer a DA like Vance, but they've been very different in terms of their approach to white collar crime. For the Manhattan DA and for the state attorney general, I think there was no non-political option here. Are they charging Weisselberg because he was the CFO to a company that was run by a Republican president? Of course, but Weisselberg wasn't pursued by the IRS and DOJ in part because he was the CFO of a company owned by a Republican president. In terms of assessing the performance of offices here, I think we should also say a little about the IRS and DOJ tax. It's the responsibility of the IRS to audit the president every year. Trump was, in years that were covered by those audits, writing personal checks to pay for the tuition of Weisselberg's grandkids' tuition. Uh, so this suggests that that audit wasn't very thorough. And one of the original reasons for focusing on Trump's tax returns was this thought that we need some framework for ensuring that our commander in chief and our chief tax enforcement officer is actually obeying the tax laws in his personal dealings. And I think this is emphasized that we need something more than the good graces of the president in voluntarily releasing his returns, plus the hope that this IRS impartial audit actually churns up anything amiss. We are going to leave it there. Quinta Jurassic, Daniel Hamill, Rebecca Royfe, thank you all for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is the intrepid Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. If you haven't yet rated the Lawfare Podcast, I don't know what more I can say to get you to do it. We have many more listeners than we have reviews. Go add one. Maybe it should begin, oh my God, our life will never be the same now that we've discovered the Lawfare podcast. Maybe it won't. Our merch is available at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the one, the only Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.